Once, I forget where I was. Central America, maybe. Somewhere hot. Stupid job, bad pay, dangerous location, and water so foul the natives wouldn't even piss in it. This crowd of drunken motherfuckers hired by the local drug cartel shows up at my hotel room and threatens to tear me limb from limb. And I say, Listen, hombres. Okay, you got me outnumbered here, four to one, and you're gonna kill me here tonight, and not a soul in this dimly lit world is gonna notice I'm gone. But one of you, one of you, one of you is gonna have his eye torn out. Period. Silence. I repeat myself. One of you poor, underpaid jerks is gonna have an eye ripped out of its socket. I promise. It's a small thing, perhaps, all things considered, but I will succeed. Because it's the only thing I have left to do in this world. So why don't you just take a good look at one another one last time and think it over a few minutes more. And then what happened? Well, here I am, still. conversation took a weird turn once we started recording <laughs> yeah i know it was way cooler before we started it's the pressure the added pressure of knowing that this is going to be recorded for posterity and we all just fucking like run mm-hmm. off at the mouth with incoherent garbage all right so here let's uh maybe do a, a, an actual start here so we, we what i thought we were doing is uh we were going to talk about our lost horizons like um i don't know if this is what you all meant when you when that came up but i i started i pulled out a notebook and i started writing down all these things that in a, in a previous version of me, I was like looking forward to and thinking like, Oh, well, I'm going to get there or we're going to get there. And yeah, and, that's exactly what I was. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And when I get there, it's going to be awesome. And then either it, I never got there uh, or I did. And it was not the party that I thought I was arriving at. And uh, so I have a, I have a list actually. It's kind of, I, it, it was a somewhat depressing activity to engage in, but I, I have a list of, of these sorts of things that I'm happy to share. <laughs> Leave it to us on the Dialectical Pessimist Podcasting Network. It's like, hey, let's all do a group activity. And it's the most depressing fucking thing imaginable. So it's right in line with our philosophy. I've, I've found, and I don't know, maybe Neil could tell me about why, that I feel a whole hell of a lot better when I just wallow in the shit that's making me unhappy than I do if I try to like pretend like everything is going to be okay. You know, mm-hmm. I just fully let it wash over me and then just go, all right cool and try to move on that that's i think that the been the best for me not not to try to make myself feel better distract myself but just fucking wallow in it this this is one of the questions that comes up because freud uh started to actually be really interested in why it was that people got uh enjoyment from things that were depressing uh from things that were demoralizing because that that was in such stark opposition to this idea of the pleasure principle 
ultimately. And it seems to me, I have a huge like timeline that I'm, I'm building here, like that goes back to 1895 and ends in about 1926 uh, of, of him trying to engage this idea. So one day, um, I might actually have an answer for you, Chris, <laughs> about that. But <laughs> I, I'm, Thank you. I'm trying to work it out at the moment. I'm not sure that I have a good one. Well, I think a, a decent place to start would just be like the earliest, what is the earliest lost horizon that you as a child, like the, the, the horizon that you thought you were reaching for, that you either achieved and, you know, weren't happy with or just dis- it dissipated? What was that for you? Anyone? Okay. So this, is, this isn't a childhood memory for me, right? But this was, uh, I made my big list of things uh, that I, I was really looking forward to. And this is the one that I, I think really kind of uh, changed me the most, ultimately. Uh, so when when I was in college, you know, is, is when I, I I think really discovered in a somewhat meaningful way Marx, and and I started to read uh, stuff by the Black Panthers, and I I started to read uh, I read Empire, and I decided uh, that one of the things that I wanted to do when I was done being in college was to work with people who were poor and disadvantaged, um, and I had this idea I, I think uh, of kind of like going in with my my knowledge armed with that and that somehow being armed with that knowledge would give me the necessary words, skills, I'm not sure, maybe both, to inspire people who didn't have what it was that they needed to kind of like organize together, to band together in, in, in an organized way, and to then uh, advocate for those things that they needed in a way that was effective. I left college, and one of my first real jobs was working with people who were all from, from poverty. And it was really, really sad because um, they, I mean, they weren't interested in a lot of ways in a lot of the things that I, w- I was talking about. They were like, dude, you, you're talking about the stuff and like, I, I actually don't have, an, like they didn't have enough money to have groceries. They were worried about like where they were going to sleep. They were worried about um, living, like their, their body continuing to exist, right? And it's just sort of like uh, they don't have the time to really think about uh, organization and, and, and those sorts of things. It was weird. It was like a total death of a fantasy for me, right? Like, I, I don't know, looking back at it today, I don't know why I thought that I would be able to do that. I mean, maybe it was just like youth or something, but I really did think that I was going to be able to make a difference in people's lives. And I just didn't even know anything about their lives, right? I had no idea what their lives were like. Or I shouldn't say I had no idea. I had the smallest of ideas, most of which uh, I kind of filled in with my own imagined ideas about what kind of people it was that I was going to be working with. And, uh, that really showed me that, that, you know, uh, working with the poor is not something which is easy. It's really hard work. And even if you do the really hard work, that's still not necessarily any guarantee that you'll be effective. Um, just because the, the material conditions are so stark, it, it changed so much about me. Like I, I, I started the job and then like, if you were to look at me, maybe like a year later, I think that I had, uh, become kind of calloused, um, and my enthusiasm had certain, certainly waned and faded. And, uh, uh, later on I had to do different things to try to, I think, um, recalibrate myself, but that, that was a real big blow to me. I think you, uh, learned a lesson about the systemic nature of poverty and how it impedes us from ever making any kinds of positive changes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weird now. Like, um, I was just talking with a, a I, I was talking with somebody, I was listening to a podcast the other day. Uh, it's and, like hanging out. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's um, a pair of social relationship. Come on. It's yeah, real. I've never talked to this podcaster. It's a dude in England. His name is uh, uh, Jay Springett, I think. And he does a podcast called 301 Permanently Moved. And 
he did this episode where he was talking about the recent like state responses to the coronavirus and to the death of George Floyd and to police brutality. And he was saying that in his conversations with people, a lot of times he hears this phrase, we need to be at war with, we need to be at war with the, with the virus. We need to be at war with police brutality. We need to be at war with poverty. And he said that, um, instead of thinking of it as a war, what if we thought of it as a rescue mission, right? Like what if we, we were mounting a rescue mission for, in response to racism? What if we were mounting a rescue mission in response to police brutality or the coronavirus or whatever thing? And, uh, when I heard that, I, I thought, yeah, that sounds great. I like that. That's good. But then, um, shortly after that, I did this thing. Right. And I, I think maybe at the time I wasn't imagining myself in the story that I just told of like going to war with poverty. I thought it was mounting a rescue mission of some sort. Right. But, um, what, what maybe was the hardest thing about it was that, I mean, I, I was the people around me who were also kind of like doing the same sort of stuff that I was trying to do, at least ostensibly we weren't organized, right? We were just trying to, we were a bunch of like young college grads getting our first jobs, working for these agencies that were underfunded, trying to go out into the world and like, like do a thing. And of course we didn't have, you know, the, the, the resources necessary to mount any significant rescue operation, but we, we were like, well, we'll, we'll be really enthusiastic. And that wasn't enough. I think successful rescue operations are going to require a war on capitalism. (laughs) You know, it's it's actually interesting to hear you talk about that, Neil, because you know that's that's kind of what I do. Like that's that's kind of the nature of my work is very specifically working with people who are you know horribly traumatized and oppressed. You know, coming from you know inter intergenerational cycles of poverty. And yeah, I think it. Um, I actually talk to that I talk to my interns a lot about this now from the social work schools. It's just like, hey, if you want to like do this kind of work, you just need to be really aware of what you're stepping into and try to get rid of any you know, any kind of like savior complex that I think a lot of us go into this work with because it will, it will be horribly divested from you very fast. And then you will not be prepared for the impact of that. Um, I, so I'm feel like I, I kind of step into this role. Maybe it's because of the nature of red library, but I'm going to ask, have y'all ever heard of uh, Raymond Williams concept of negative identification? this ring a bell so Let, I actually, let's say no so that you can explain it to us uh, that thank yeah, we'll, you for we'll mobilizing my desire <laughs> we, we always know this should yeah i know it, so. i i know y'all like have encyclopedic knowledge of raymond williams like every other good marxist that i know um so, uh but i actually um there was a while back i was reading some of his writings about like culture and society in, in England, you know, in the 19th century. But there was this really powerful concept that has helped me understand a lot of what you're talking about, Neil, and myself. And, and especially, I think, in a lot of organizing work I, I've done in Austin is how we get into this process where we, you know, we go for the rescue mission or we go with the idea that we're going to war with like poverty and capitalism. And, you know, a lot of people I know who come from more hardcore like Marxist-Leninist kind of strands absolutely go into it as if it's a war like that's part of the appeal is like it's this idea of like i get to sort of somehow be engaged in combat without necessarily like going overseas and fighting something but that that appeal of like war and combat i think is deeply ingrained in like what makes certain positions on the left like very attractive to people 
Uh, but Williams's concept is that this is actually something you saw a lot with uh, like more bourgeois intellectuals in the 19th century, where they would have this idea that like capitalism is ravaging the planet, it's ravaging people's lives, and so we have to go to war with it. And there was this uh, identification with like the people who were in poverty that they wanted to you know rescue or fight on the side of or whatever it might be. And whenever they actually had to interact with people who are dealing with poverty, who are just as complex as any other human being and dealing with horrible conditions that, you know, it's really hard to even conceptualize what it does to you. They were divested of that illusion of like who it was that they were rescuing or, or, or fighting next to. And then it led to a really deep sort of like cynicism and, and resentment about the very people that they thought they were saving and a lot of times they turn to things like aesthetics and like poetry precisely as this idea that, well, class struggle and actually like, you know, helping people who are dealing with poverty, like actually doesn't, doesn't like match up to my fantasy of what I thought it was. And so there was this kind of escape into the realm of aesthetics as like a, as like a, you know, kind of like a palliative to that experience. And it really stuck with me because I've seen a lot of people, you know, actually engage in organizing, do the same thing. You know, you see them get divested of that. And then what do they turn to? It's like they turn to these other areas, which somehow are like neater and cleaner that don't have all that complexity and kind of all that horrible shit that goes along with just being human and being in poverty. So I don't know. I mean, that concept for me is actually a way I've tried to make sense to that exact same kind of phenomena, I think. Yeah. I think the escape into the realm of aesthetics is broader than many of us realize. I think so too. Yeah, I absolutely. Think, I think a lot of what passes for like actual engagement in the material world is really actually just performance and aesthetics. Um, like Chris and I have talked about this a lot about the, and it's hard to do without sounding super dismissive of, of everything, but the, there's a version of uh, doing something, doing the work, which really does just amount to kind of like dressing up and putting on a, a bit of a play. LARPing. Out in the, yeah. Out in the street. Right. And, uh, it was quite it was quite disillusioning to realize after several years of being in a socialist group and you know engaging in the class struggle that it was really just like performing outrage um that was like almost as bad as graduating high school and realizing i had to be an adult now you know oh, it was yeah. like <laughs> that was a that was a horizon i arrived at that i was not happy uh yeah happy about at all mhm that i mean i have the exact same sort of situation and I, I guess Adam probably does too, having used to hang out with the LARPiest of all LARPers, didn't you? Oh, I have. I cut my teeth. I got my cred, my street cred in the LARPiest of all LARPers and got excommunicated from them. So, you know, I have my merit badge. Hold on a second That's here. Cool, yeah. I got I to gotta stop you all and, and tell you something that I don't think I've ever talked about on a podcast before. When you talk about LARPing, when I was a young man, uh, I LARPed and went like literally walked around and pretended I was a vampire. Like oh, you LARP. used to do the masquerade, vampire the masquerade? Yeah, you know, you walk yeah. around like this, right? You know, you can't see me on my vampire arms and do this because so you look like somebody. Yeah, all the hand signals, all that. I remember yeah, totally people used to do that when I was in high school, like um, so whatever passed for goth kids back then. <laughs> they they used to be real into um, vampire the masquerade. Yep, played but, the shit um, out of that. Was Was a big member in the International Paper, Rock, Scissors League. Nice. <laughs> but yeah, so like 
I think that sort of my first Lost Horizon was was a the death of a vision of the future that I had that was one where I thought I was going to be a journalist. You know, I was uh, I was very political and and I graduated when I was like 17 years old. So I was 17 and super political. Um, didn't know anything about what I actually said that I believed, but I was like, you know, I'm going to be one of those journalists that like uncovers the real stories and exposes things for how they really are. And then I took sounds. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect analogy. That's (laughs) I was, I was actually a member of the communist party back then. And, uh, what I, I, I took journalism classes and quickly began to realize when taking those journalism classes that you're just writing to sell ad space. And my, my very last journalism class that I ever took, and which was the end of my dreams of becoming an investigative journalist, were when I took an, ad, an advertising course as part of my journalism uh, course of credits. And my journalism professor, who was also one of my other, taught a couple of my other journalism classes, taught us all about, I think he's pretty cynical at this point, taught us all about how what you, what you write doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter if it's, uh, you know, timely. It doesn't matter if it's actually telling the news. It just matters that it sells ad revenue. And he, in no, like he didn't, he didn't mince words at all. That's what he told us. And he just said that, you know, if you're in this, if you're getting into journalism to, to make a difference, then uh, you're wasting your time. So you should do mm. something else. <laughs> so I did. I still haven't made a difference, but <laughs> I gave up in doing it that way. So I actually have a, a pretty, pretty huge one in my life. Whenever I think about maybe the earliest one, I don't, I don't know if I would say this is the earliest one, but it's probably the one that has the most uh, relevance in my life, but it's kind of related to career as well. I, um, you know, whenever I was, I was maybe about 12 years old, I started playing guitar. And I think I mentioned, at least on Red Library before, I, or maybe here, that I used to be a musician before I became a social worker. I was a professional musician for 12, 15 years. And, you know, I started playing very young and had this idea that basically playing music was going to be my ticket to some kind of, well, I think what I I now realize retroactively I wanted was essentially a way to feel like I had like love and acceptance and felt okay about myself in the world. But at the time, you know, I, I like it did start from a genuine place of really loving the art form of playing music and mastering an instrument. And so I spent, you know, 10 to 12 hours every single day for years upon years to try to master, master my craft of playing an instrument. And I remember that starting about, I went to music school in Boston for a little bit and then, you know, became a full-time musician. I played, I taught music and, you know, and over the years, I think I started to become very, very miserable doing what I was doing. And I think at some point what I had to give up was sort of that, that future of like that my whole life was going to be defined by playing music. And that's the only thing I wanted to do. I didn't care what happened. I didn't care, you know, what, what the cost was going to be. It's like, as long as I was playing music, like that's all I gave a shit about. And, you know, it was kind of a pretty rude awakening to find myself, you know, struggling and miserable and depressed and sad because my commitment, my fidelity to that idea was actually, you know, kind of a very self-destructive thing after a while and wasn't actually, 
wasn't actually getting me anything that I really think I, I actually wanted or needed in my life. And then I think at some point I, I gave it up and then basically got out of it and found social work and then, you know, wanting to be a therapist and, you know, and everything else. But I mean, it's funny because I think for some people in my life, they, they don't see that as a lost like future or, or maybe they still look to me as if like I'm still existing on that. But for me that, you know, that's been a lost future for about 10 years now. And, um, you know, and it's funny to look back and think about how much that defined everything in my life and defined my entire sense of self. And, you know, and to look back and not just be like, oh, I, I no longer have that career, but that entire version of who I was doing that thing is also gone in a lot of ways. Um, you know, and maybe in some ways I'm, I'm actually glad that's a lost future because I, I think I'm, I'm, much, <laughs> I'm much more happy with what I found after that. But uh, the process of going through that was completely brutal and just life destroying in a lot of ways. So mm. you can definitely think- relate to that. I had a similar experience where up until what, like 2007, it's pretty much all I wanted to do. It was in bands and yeah, play and go on tour. And um, it was all I ever really wanted to do. And I don't think I ever had quite the, the, the clear vision that this is like my career, but I think I just never really thought I would have a career. I thought I'd always be like work odd jobs and then go on tour. And I don't really have a, a solid, uh, I didn't really have like a solid, you know, disillusionment like with abandoning that trajectory, it was more like at some point I realized like, Oh, I just haven't been doing that anymore. And like, that used to be who I was. And at some point I stopped and it's I just when you never realized you weren't punk anymore. Yeah. I mean, that was, a, that was a, it was a very tragic realization that like there's, there was a thing that dominated my, my basically my every thought, you know, d- defined what I wanted out of life, what I wanted to be doing in any given moment, uh, who I associated with, how I, carried myself and then to have it just be gone and like dead and over and like so that means that not just like some stuff i used to do but a whole version of my life and a whole version of who i was as a person was over did you that that was a big disappointment to realize kind of in retrospect did for both of you i mean like um was there like a moment at which you sort of like realized that 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 had been something that you were seeing as a potential future and then like in, in a moment it was like wrong gone out of here or was it more like this kind of like gradual kind of slow realization that you had changed and that 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 future wasn't really your future or wasn't the future something like that so i I guess that's the the question i'm asking was it was it a sharp abrupt cut or was it this kind of like long and unfurling process i I can say for me there Looking back on it, obviously there was like a, a more of a long and furling process, but I can tell you a distinct particular moment where, where that fundamentally changed. And I was standing on the second floor of a dance hall, of a, of a country dance hall in Fort Worth, Texas. And I was after a sound check and I was standing up there and I was looking down on the stage and this was, you know, it was actually a really great venue like the band I was playing in was actually very good. It was a Texas country band. Um, but I remember standing on that stage and just looking down at the gear on the stage after the sound check. And I just remember thinking, I just, I just can't do this anymore. I just can't do it. I don't want to do it. I will not do it. And I immediately started making phone calls to figure out, you know, kind of flailing, but figuring out what am I going to do instead? Um, but to me, that that memory is imprinted very strongly in my mind of standing and looking down at the stage in that empty dance hall and just feeling just complete, 
<laughs> complete despair and like deprivation in some way, you know, because it just, it really did feel like everything just crumbled in that one moment. I actually had the exact same thing because Jason and I were both in those bands together. And uh, the, the, the process, the point where we realized, or where I realized that this isn't going to be something that we were going to do anymore is when our, um, our band broke up because our, first of all, our bandmates, thought we were assholes. <laughs> they, they were mistakenly they, uh, they were, under they were the wrong. impression. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the big thing they said, you guys are way more interested in all this communism stuff and like going to school anyway. Yeah. And they were right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Like I remember that was the same year. Our band broke up. We went off to college and I thought, I'll start a band while I'm in school, you know, with new people in my new city. And it never happened because that goal, that like project kept moving down in terms of priorities. Cause first it was like, I'll get established. I'll find a job on campus. I'll get a sense of my, what my, what it's like to be a student. And then I'll start a band, but instead it started a socialist club. And I was like, I'd still like to start a band, you know, at some point. And then that, that group, uh, you know, got really involved in things happening around town and then it affiliated to a national network of other groups. And it, one day I just realized like, oh, I'm never going to start another band because that thing that has, that used to be like what I was is just, it's what, it's what I used to be. It's no longer what I am. Um, Let's start a band. (laughs) Right now. This many years later, I probably could start a band. Yeah. Hey, isn't a podcasting network kind of like a band? Kind of is. That's what we always talk about it. Like, like uh, my wife will be like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Listen to my own band." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Neil, I'm curious. Do you remember having a distinct moment for you whenever you worked in that that first agency after you graduated, where it was, you know, you had that realization? I don't actually. So like, I mean, that, that first agency, what ended up happening was, uh, uh, man, how do I, this is, this is weird as I, as I kind of like think about the, the order, I haven't thought about this in a really long time of the way that things went down. But, um, uh, you know, I, I did stuff there for a while and I, and very quickly I found myself in like what, what was an air quotes senior position because there was such a huge amount of burnout, you know, in, in these agencies surprise. Yep. You it's know, like a, uh, the lifespan for uh, for most uh, social workers is something like three years tops, right? Yeah, I've heard two to three. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that that matches up with this. I'd say it was probably like like two two and a half years in that they were like, "Hey, you've been here for a long time, like longer than most of the other people," and so yeah. we're going to turn you into like the I don't remember what the title was, like shift leader or some such thing. And it's like, yeah, okay, and they give me like you know. Us, more money but it was not really <laughs> ultimately is kind of what it came down to so i was kind of like scraping by and doing that and then um i ended up uh going i, I mean when i went to school I, I i became a certified teacher right i went and i got a, a teacher certificate and then i i kind of happened into this job on accident i uh i taught in a middle school for my first year out of out of school and teaching middle school was really hard and like most teachers at the end of that year, like I was laid off and then it's like, we'll probably hire you back again the next year. This is a, a common practice that happens. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was summer and, you know, I, my income had gone away and I needed to get another job. And the middle school that I was working at 
was like I was spending 90 minutes driving to it from my home and then, Holy you know, shit. 90 minutes in the car on the way back because I, I needed a job. And I, I found a, a summer job at the Substance Abuse Treatment Center. And it, it was near, really near where I lived and like, wait, not nowhere close to 90 minutes. I think I was probably in the car for like probably 10 minutes driving to it. So I, I started doing that. And um, I, I mean, I made less money in working in the substance abuse treatment center than I did working in the school. But the the work in the substance abuse treatment center was actually from a, like a, I don't know what I'd, I'd really call this, a, a different way. It was far more fulfilling. And it gave me enough money. I mean, I was living in a house with like five other people. I had just graduated college like a year before. And so there was a bunch of people who I lived with when I was in school. And some of them were still in school. And some of them like me weren't. And we, we just kind of continued to rent this this house together. And I mean, you split the rent five ways and it was totally doable. So I was working in this treatment center. And uh, then I got a job offer to go to another school someplace else. And I took it. And... Um, and this was one of the things that I learned in this. They offered me like a, a, a so much more money, right? Because it was a it wasn't just like a high school or a middle school. It was a therapeutic day school, is what they're called uh, slash alternative school. And they were like, "We will give you," and they gave me like a, an amount of money that was extremely surprising because it was like three times what I was currently making, and possibly more than that. And I was like, "Yeah, I'll do that." And then I was there for about a month, and then they told me like, "Okay, here's the here we're going to give you a choice." You can. Uh, we don't have the funding to support you, so we can either let you go completely, or you can take this other job, which actually makes less money than the job that you left, and continue to have a job. Right? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and so the, one of the things that I, I kind of like took from that is that you know sometimes when people offer you a deal and it seems way too good to be true, it probably is. And and also it was a job that I didn't want to take when I left where I was. Um, I mean, I probably should have left there anyway. So leaving there wasn't a good idea, but leaving there for where I went to, I had a lot of like, um, misgivings about the place, but the money was so great that I was like, I, I got it. This would be stupid not to do this. So taking a job for, if the money is your, is my main reason for taking a job, I believe that that's probably not good for anything other than bitter disappointment. Right now, if you, if you get money and you get good work, like cool. Cause if they don't give you the money, you have the work, Right. That's how I, how I look at that. But if the work sucks and they don't give you the money, you don't have anything. Um, and so that was, that was kind of a, a realization for me there too. And, it, and it, it, I don't know, like it, it I, prior to that, maybe I, I was under the impression that people who created these sorts of agencies, like, like therapeutic schools and, and other things that they actually had some sort of like, uh, I, they had a mission, they had a, a desire to create a better world. And, uh, you know, I, I think over the years, I just kind of started to realize, like, no, that's not the case at all. But I can't think of any specific moment where I was like, I had my heart, like, just kind of like broken right there. Um, it was a real slow breaking for me, uh, not not with any one specific point. That almost sounds like my whole uh general feeling about social work as a profession is almost <laughs> a lost future in that sense, or it's always teeter teetering on whether it's a lost future or not. Um, just because of how, how prevalent that sort of shit is, you know, you, you just realize how many agencies and people you think they're operating on a mission and, and have this like idea of changing things and trying to create a better world in some sort of way. And then you just realize that they are so thoroughly uh, limited or, or even just, you know, 
that's really not what they're about or like, you know, the profit motive or just staying open and just like making sure you have enough funding to get through the next year just so thoroughly dominates everything. There's no time. There's no space for having that vision anymore. For sure. For sure. Um, you know, as, as you talk about this though, too, it, it kind of like makes me think of a, another thing that, that was significant here on, on my list and it's more abstract, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I have one which is really abstract and I have one which is in, incredibly personal. This is the more abstract one. Um, I remember probably being like starting when I was, I'll say like 18 years old and, and into to my 20s. I started reading a lot of science fiction. I mean, I always read science fiction as a kid, but I, I think uh, this is weird. I started to like seriously read science fiction and, and also started to be interested in like the science behind the science fiction and the technology and stuff. So like, have you, have you guys ever read the, the Red Mars trilogy by any chance by Kim Stanley no, Robinson? I've been, mean, I've been meaning to. I keep being told that I should. Yeah, same. I, I, ha- I have the first in the trilogy, but I've had it since I've had it for about seven years. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I mean, gonna open it soon, though. I swear. It, that was one of those things. Like this, the the I don't actually think that the story is actually that great. It's it's, but the science because he's this guy who tried to. I mean, he learned so much about terraforming, and and uh, he must have watched Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all that jazz, right? So he has he has really cool science, and I started to like get into that sort of stuff. I was like, this is great. I love this, and um, I started to develop this immense amount of faith in what would happen when technology became like available and kind of like cheap enough for, for the masses to acquire it, that what they would do is they would sort of overthrow their, their, the overlords that, that were controlling everything. And I remember it being 2005 specifically where I, um, I had, I'd started a podcast about comic books and I was talking to these other people who were doing podcasts about different things. And we were like, this is it, this is the future. And I was reading Cory Doctorow books and, and it, it was great. And then, um, over time it started to just sort of like fade away. All these like really interesting kind of like independent podcasts were, were overtaken by NPR and and other big agencies that, that started to create podcasts and my faith in the transformative power of technology to liberate people from the conditions that they're in, uh, even in, in small ways, like the way that they entertain themselves, much less like, like big ways, like the way that we provide, um, for our, our medical technology to people who need it, that, that, that just like that faded. Um, it just went away for, and, and, um, I can remember there being a moment where it was, uh, um, when, when the people started t- doing sponsorships on their shows, you know, uh, that, that really, I don't know. I remember, I remember hearing that and just being like, fuck, you just did a sponsorship on, you know, yeah. like you were, cause these were shows that were ostensibly like, you know, fuck moneyed interests getting in on what we're doing here. But then a moneyed interest showed up with a check and they were like, Oh, well this moneyed interest is a little bit different. Like we, we can, we can go okay with this one. And I don't know. That's weird. It, it seems like a weird thing, but that, that was, that was a lost future for me. Right. The idea that, you know, when, when everybody gets an iPhone, Dude, like think of it. And I mean, that's been iPhones have been used for some social change, I think, right? Like they're being used to hold police more accountable now because everybody has a device that has a camera on it all the time. Uh, but the the future that I thought was coming didn't come. You got disillusioned with fully automated luxury communism really quickly. I, I don't know if I really quickly, but I did get disillusioned with it for sure. Yeah. There's a book that for me was pretty instrumental and I think it's coming to terms with technology and its potential being a lost horizon. And it's, uh, it's called Radical Technologies, The Design of Everyday Life by Adam Greenfield. 
And it's just really interesting because he basically talks a lot about how the, these technologies have all this potential to do all these amazing life-changing things, to really fundamentally alter our basic experience of our lives and potentially what, what's possible in the world. But under the current conditions of capitalism and, and who has control of those technologies, how they're designed, the profit motive, it really destroys that potential and they get subverted and kind of captured by you know, consumerism and, and sort of commodity fetishism and all this other stuff. So to me, I, I think that book was, was kind of instrumental in my own coming to terms with that. And it just brings up a question for me because I think a lot of people don't see technology as a lost future. Like a lot of people still do see things like uh, you know, Apple products and Microsoft and Tesla and all this other stuff is like, these really are where the future and utopia still exists. So I think it can, it's interesting for me to try to always figure out how do you navigate that with people? Like I see this as a lost future. You see this as utopia, like, or as a, as a sort of like, um, like a potential utopia or one that we're actually currently experiencing, or it's like the golden age. So I'm wondering how do y'all like try to navigate that whenever you see something as a lost future and someone else, you know, might see it as utopia. I don't really try to navigate it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, look, your utopia is a living hell. Okay. (laughs) And I hate it and I want out, (laughs) but I can't. I just want to say I was wondering if this is where we've talked before about whether, you know, whenever people say, oh, like, why can't you just let me enjoy something? I mean, in some way, like, I'm wondering if that's kind of how most of us respond to it. It's just like, no, I'm not going to let you enjoy this because it's a hell world. Or yeah, like, I mean, yeah. it depends on who I'm talking to, but more or less, it's either like, yeah, fine, go ahead. But that, that amounts to me doing something else or it means me engaging with whatever the topic with, with that particular topic which by necessity, in essence, amounts to, no, I'm not going to let you enjoy this thing. <laughs> Those are the only two ways I know how to navigate it. You know, it's that, that, this makes me think about this, right? Like, um, the, the weird thing about technology is that it can be used, it, it, it's, it's a really interesting tool because I think it can be used um, in terms of enjoyment to like either pr- produce enjoyment, produce things that, that are really kind of like fun uh, that, you, that you like doing but can also be used to kind of like cut people off from their enjoyment in a way. And when you do that, it's like using technology to display the, um, the damage, you know, that's being done for people to enjoy themselves. So, you know, it, it shows the conditions of the, the factories where the technology that you enjoy was created and the, the condition, the, the anti-suicide nets that they're putting up so that people can't even do that. Right. Like you, yeah, anymore, right? So technology can be used in a, in a bunch of different ways. What's really disheartening about it is that it is so frequently used to, even though it's really powerful, right? It's like people having this really wonderful, powerful thing and they're using it to, um, you know, just amuse themselves in in silly ways and they're not using it for uh, to, to try to show themselves and others kind of um the state of things right uh i i think my future was the people when they had the technology they would use it the the other way they'd use it to show people hey look at this 
look at this. You have to see this, right? And they'd have the ability to do it because like before, I mean, if you wanted to, to, I don't know, like make a documentary film about the, the conditions of a, a really horrible place, you had to have a lot of money to do that. Well, my, my thought was if people don't need to have a lot of money to do that, they'll do it. And then people's minds will be changed. And then it turned out that people did get to the point where they, they could do this. And instead we have a bunch of YouTube channels where about how to put on makeup, you know, and, and not a lot trying to, I don't know, try to alter the course of social, economic and environmental justice in the world. Well, man, not just put on makeup, which is like, sure, you got to learn somewhere. You get YouTube videos about how the earth is not actually round. <laughs> I was going to say uh, fast food food reviews, so which are my personal favorite, but yeah. I mean, yeah. I, and I, I say this as a hypocrite, right? Because like I've totally enjoyed stupid stuff on, on the internet like everybody else, right? Like I enjoy it a lot. But um, I don't know. It's like like what what could happen if, I don't know, people people use technology in a different way. That was that was something I really thought would happen. I did. I, I believed that people would, would be fundamentally different if they had access. And then they had access and they weren't that different. I didn't believe that. I had... We had a very mechanistic Marxist understanding of technology, which has changed a little bit, but not a whole lot. Like I, I figured that the mode of production wouldn't allow people to use that for anything useful. Um, and it turns out I was right. Um, there, there are minor instances, I think, I mean, not minor instances. I would say that there has been, the, the, the technology has been put to good use in many instances, right? But just not enough to fundamentally change the the nature of society i think that the capitalism knows really well how to to take emerging tech emerging technologies and ideas and movements and art and philosophy and social movements and channel them back in to be productive uh, at recreating the social dynamics right it's recuperation i guess right in in all things not just in social movements but Anything useful, anything with potential that could possibly change the paradigm is going to be successfully just woven back in to help reinforce it. Yeah. If, and in fact, in, in a way, I guess that's a, you could say that that's a lost horizon that at some point I realized as well. It kind of relates back to the performative protest and, you know, like, uh, well, whatever, the whole the whole life and the whole life cycle and rhythm of activity that comes from you know, responding to whatever outrage in the world with like a prescribed plan for like spreading awareness and attracting more people, supposedly. It's that that also seems to really work as grease on the gears. And that was a, that's a tough pill to swallow, right? That's a really, that's a really devastating realization. Whenever um, you're up against something that's so sophisticated, it knows how to use what you want to its own advantage. I think kind of a related thing, and this might be a, a hard turn, but I can't help but think about the role of technology and the lost horizons of things like, you know, the anti-globalization protests in 1999, Occupy, the Arab Spring, you know, and the way that all of these things were seen as, oh, this is where things like technology and being able to show people all over the world what's happening, like, this is going to be the thing that changes everything. And you know, take Egypt, for example. I mean, then all of a sudden, you know, the military takes power, like the Muslim Brotherhood takes power and all that potential of that technology and what we thought it could do 
like dissolved into nothingness, dissolved into essentially like a reinforcement of a, you know, pretty hard right wing regime. And so to me, I think the technology thing also correlates a lot with, I think, larger political horizons and whether we think, you know, these autonomous sorts of protests and movements can can of their of themselves like somehow you know that that there's always this idea that the autonomous spontaneous eruption is always the utopia finally arriving and it just has yet to do so i think Mm. and it has that sort of thing you know has really sort of made it hard to ever look at any good thing happening with any kind of hope um (laughs) for me Anyway, um, yeah. I, I, I see what's going on around us right now. And while I'm very happy that people are so fed up with the, the situation in the United States with just completely unchecked police brutality and racism, the people are finally standing up to it. I, uh, I can't help but see just a sort of gradual co-option is that right is that the right word co-option co-optation co-optation mm-hmm. of the of all of the demands and the goals of the movement by the you know by the establishment and it really makes me think that uh, i i should stay without hope moving forward um while also doing whatever i can to help push forward the goals of of these movements uh i can't can't deign to hope you know i think that's this shouldn't surprise anyone listening to this at all <laughs> that's kind of your brand <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's the you know pascal's wager thing again well right because it because it, it basically amounts to like uh you have to decide to operate as though you still hope that things can can happen yeah um so maybe you can do that because of your intelligence. I mean, sorry, because sorry, maybe you can do that because of your willpower, even if your intellect leads you to hopelessness. So, the Moonanites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Just let's just kind of veer away from the abyss. There, it's right there. It's right on the edge. Let's just turn ever so slightly away from it. It's <laughs> it's staring back and it's making me uncomfortable. <laughs> Real sad boy hours. Real sad boy hours, as always. Yeah, I was gonna. Absolutely. I was just gonna uh, try to go careening into the abyss, but uh, maybe you don't want to go there. Well, if we're a dialectical pessimist network. By definition, we probably should careen into the abyss and then mm-hmm. see if we can make it out the other side. So this is this is the thing. This is this is really fresh. Like this just happened uh, a couple of days ago for me. So um, I have a, a son. He's 13 months old, and you know, so for the last year, I haven't been able to do a lot of stuff that I used to do, be able to do all the time, like go to the movies. And uh, so I have this huge backlog of movies that I I came out that I wanted to see but didn't get a chance to see, and like maybe one day I will. One of those movies is was uh, until very recently Jojo Rabbit. Have you guys seen this? Yes. Yeah. Not yet, film. actually. Yeah. So I, I wanted to see that, and uh, um, we had a, a, my wife and I had an evening where we would be able to watch a movie, and so we we both wanted to see that. We're like, hey, let's watch Jojo Rabbit. 
And we, we actually thought it was going to be a really funny movie. Uh, ultimately, when we, we sat down to watch it, we were, we were thinking like, oh, this is going to be fun, right? And it's, it's got funny lines. It's got, it's got humor in it. But it is, mm-hmm. a, I think, a, a profoundly sad movie. It's kind of what it comes down to. Oh, and, yeah. I mean, Holocaust is kind of sad. Totally. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it, so I, I watched this movie, and I don't want to spoil anything for maybe people who haven't seen it, so I'm going to try to, to not spoil anything. But it really gets into sort of like, like I because like the kid is this fanatic, right? Like the the kid Jojo in the movie is a fanatic for Nazism, and mm-hmm. he he has a parent who who kind of is able to understand that this fanaticism comes from a a desperate desire to fit in with people and to be liked and and stuff, not necessarily because he buys into some of the the Nazi ideas and, and whatnot. But uh, as I'm watching this, it makes me realize just how easy people can be can have their desire to belong you know um used in a, in a way that turns them into really really it makes it capable for them to do monstrous things mm-hmm. in the service it's belonging gone wrong you know and so i watched this movie and like you know that we I'm, I'm bummed out at the end of it I, I go to sleep bummed out i wake up the next day bummed out and uh the next day uh, my, we, the, my wife and I kind of like shared, uh, taking care of the kid responsibilities. And uh, so there's some days where she's primarily responsible for it. And there's other days where I'm primarily responsible. And this is one of the days where I'm primarily responsible to take care of our kid after I've watched this movie and I wake up bummed out and I'm playing with him where we're, you know, downstairs and he's laughing and he's doing things like it, it, the kids find the, the silliest things, like uh, just uh, like ridiculously hilarious. So in this case, He's discovered that he can like take these two blocks and like pull them apart. And um, uh, he also discovers that if you like put three of them together and you squeeze them, you can like pop the middle block out. And this is this is really, really funny. It's the funniest thing in the world. And he's like laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed to the point where he's exhausted from laughing. Ultimately, right. He's 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 like <laughs> laughed himself to the point where he's out of breath. And my That's son. That's amazing. It, it, it's, it is. It's amazing to see this. Right. So he. Then he just like lies down and puts it like on, uh, he goes, ah, and he, he like lies down um, and just like looks at me with these big little kid eyes. And it, he's just like really content and looking up at me. And in that moment, I'm thinking to myself, like, here's, here's like this creature that is partially me, you know, and uh, he doesn't get it yet. He doesn't understand this, this stuff. And at some point he will. And I am like, in that moment, like, which is both beautiful because it's, it's, it's like really wonderful to watch your, your kid just like be really content and happy. But it's, it, I was also kind of heartbroken because I, I was, I'm scared. Uh, I, it wasn't that I was, I, I am still now scared uh, about the fact that he's going to enter into this world where he's going to want to belong. And I don't know what that's going to do to him. I don't know what kind of an effect it's going to have. I don't know how to insulate him from the toxic um, belonging gone wrong stuff. Of course I want to, and I might try to, but I, I don't sit here right now and, and believe that I have the ability to do that. I mean, I can, I, I can and will try, but I'm positive that I will fail in multiple ways. Um, but hopefully I will not fail completely, I guess, ultimately. And that's, that's been one of the things that I, I continue to grapple with. And it's, it's weird. It's hard. I don't even know how to describe just how, um, like uh world bending it is like watching your kid become a human being wow yeah i mean 
uh, whenever my wife and I talk about having kids, we're just like, do we want to have kids? I don't know. You know, uh, the world is a horrible, terrible place. Can you imagine how stressed out and terrified we're going to be for our kids at all times? And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'd actually just things have gotten way worse since I even last had that conversation with my wife too. So, I mean, I can't even imagine um, being afraid for something like that uh, while (laughs) there are much worse physical possibilities to be afraid about right now, but that's also something that you would have to be afraid for your child. I mean, uh, being a parent is scary, Neil. How do you do it? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I mean, like, (laughs) I think you just do, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's weird because uh I mean, when you said this thing about Chris a, a moment ago, you were saying like you you go into things and you're you're not particularly hopeful. I don't know, mm-hmm. I don't can't think of a word for this, right? Like I so f- I, I know I'm going to screw my kid up. I know the world is going to screw my kid up. I know it's unavoidable that this is going to happen. I hope that I don't screw my kid up in ways that make him into a monster. I hope that I screw him up in ways that make him endearing to other people, <laughs> you know, ultimately a like good anxiety and not like debilitating anxiety. Yeah. You know, but you know, I, I don't know how you're going to do it. It's uh, but yeah, like life as a whole in the real dude. And uh, um, I know a lot of people who, who, when they, they think about having kids and for a while, I thought this way too. Um, it's just like that, that might not be a good idea. You know, it might even be an irresponsible thing to do, but um you know, it would take a long time to probably unpack the the stories about why I, my mind kind of shifted to the point where I did want to have a kid. Like I wanted to. And uh, I mean that for me that happened. I, I, let me think here. My, my kid was born and a day later I turned 41. So I had kids late. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, ultimately, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's the whole, it's the whole in the real. And, and I think that there's something for that. I think, um, yeah, I think that's something that that I want to do, and I'm glad that I did it. And it, it's it's really cool, and it's really scary. Um, and you you try to do the best that you can, and you uh, know. I think this is actually maybe one of the differences between me and some of the other people I talk to who are parents. Um, so I've heard a lot of people say, for example, I will never hit my kid. I will never say this mean thing to my kid that my mom or dad said to me. And I, I find myself thinking uh, all the time, like, under the right conditions, I will hit my kid under the right conditions. I will say a terribly mean thing to him that is worse than whatever mean thing my parents said to me um, and all that. And, I, and it's it's kind of trying to keep in mind that there is a monster in me and that under the right conditions, that monster will come out. And so I think that a lot of my project for myself uh, today is trying to make sure that the conditions are set up in a way where it's less likely that that monster is going to come out. But I, to do that, I have to always be kind of aware of the fact that it's there and not uh, invest into this idea that I'm just awesome. And now that I'm a parent, that some transformative, magical, transcendent thing has happened to me. I'm still a person. And as a person, I still do stupid things. And I'm emotional and I, I lose my temper and all of that. So, yeah. I think if, you know, Neil, you talking about having to grapple with the fact that, you know, your, your son and, and all of us, you know, at at all points, this desire to belong will sometimes lead to us becoming monsters for the sake of, of having that, or, you know, or be prey to horrible monsters who will 
use that to exploit and take advantage of people. I mean, in some way, I think whenever I want to think through like, what is it like to work through that and to, and to like try to find some sort of like dialectical pessimist, like outcome on the other side, I think to some degree, it's that if, if we don't do that, then, then we're so at mercy for like maybe the unconscious, like yearning for that, that it makes us even more susceptible to either being monsters or being the prey of other monsters. And I mean, I think like to some degree, I, I think back to like early stages in my life, the ones that I can remember, you know, and I, don't, I won't, I mean, this is something I won't go into a whole lot, but you know, my, my memory of my early life is, is just a complete disheveled mess. You know, I have very sporadic memories of things and, and those memories that I do have are very, you know, strange and disjointed. And so, you know, I look back and I, I have a hard time having a clear, coherent, like linear narrative of what early things were like in my life. But the thing I do know, especially like reconstructing it now, is how much the desire to fit in, the desire to be validated by the other was a thing that was so fundamental and, and was so kind of like corrupted in my search for that and yearning for that, that I think it, it, you know, really fucked my life up in a lot of ways. I mean, just to be real, you know, keep it real 100 on, on Lost Horizons network time. I, you know, I think a lot about grappling with my own history and realizing how, like in a lot of ways, the first 25 years of my life are a lost horizon, you know, because of the things I didn't want to deal with or the things that like had affected me deeply and wounded me that I just did not either have the, the awareness of or the motivation to or the, I, like, honestly, the courage to have to sit down and really face about my life. And I do, I wonder that a lot now, you know, being a therapist and like being in therapy and reading and studying all the shit that we're all interested in. It's like, wow, you know, what Lost Horizons were there in those 25 years of all the different things that could have happened differently and all the ways it would have changed. And I think to me, it's almost like, Chris, I hope you'll appreciate this. You know, whenever I think about like the Angelus Novus looking back on history and just seeing like the junk pile that is just being blown and just stacking up higher and higher, I can't help but like resonate with that on a really personal level to be like, yeah, I mean, I look back at the first, especially 25 years of my life and that's what it feels like. It's like, it is this catastrophe of history that is there. And, and mm -hmm. I just, you know, and like, to me, that's why I think that image is always really stuck with me because it's, it's a way of trying to recognize like the lost horizons that are there, the lost futures that are buried and all of that stuff. And, and yet, you know, trying to sort of, if possible, like turn back towards the future in a way, because I think for most of my life, you know, my whole entire life, I, maybe that's why I'm so attracted to the dialectical pessimist position is because like, Oh, that's, that's my life. Like that's, that helps me make sense of personally how my own individual experience links up to some broader, larger context. That's more than just about my life. I um, think about when I was probably in my mid twenties ish that that era, and I think about myself as as someone who thought they were constantly working on themselves and making themselves into a better person. And uh, I didn't realize this at the time. I don't realize it. In, I didn't realize it until looking back on it later. But I, I thought that I was a really good person and I was doing a good job, right? I was not sexist. I was not racist. You know, I didn't have bad ideas. I used all the correct verbiage, you know. I, uh, I would call people out when they said, uh, when they used things that were considered offensive. You know, I was a good person. I was, I was doing what I was supposed to do. I was like in a very, you know, sort of Calvinist kind of way, like perfecting myself, right? 
and then now as I'm older, uh, I have sort of, I look, I look at myself now and go, I'm kind of a piece of shit, you know? Um, <laughs> it's not that I shouldn't try th- to do things to make myself better. I, uh, you know, I definitely should, but you know, I mean, you know, I'm not doing a very good job. So I got to stop thinking about myself like I'm good. And I feel like now I'm much more willing to work on things about myself that are bad than I was back when I thought I was doing a good job and trying to improve myself all the time. So that for me is a type of lost horizon where mm-hmm. Uh, reaching that that perf- perfection as a as a person who's constantly working on themselves as like a good Marxist, a good leftist, a good ally, or whatever else you know mm-hmm. that's over. I don't think that I'm ever going to be whatever that the that vision was. I don't think it's possible. Um, and I feel like now I'm much more willing to take criticism. Now I'm much more willing to to actually work on the things about myself. Um, now that I don't think that it's ever possible to be good. And, um, and I don't know why, but that's, I I was thinking about all of this while you were, while you were talking about your situation, Adam. And I, and I feel like that's probably a very generalizable situation to a lot of people that grew up, uh, in, on the left thinking Mm -hmm. of like, um, life's, uh, your lifestyle as a representation of your politics. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like that there was some sort of level of perfection that you could achieve. And, uh, yeah, I think it's been very liberating to realize that no, we're all pieces of shit. <laughs> Excremental selves. Yes, exactly. Well, and they're, you know, it's liberating for other people in other ways because then it means they don't feel like they have to try to do anything. Right, right. That's so it's, it's it's a dangerous um whatever. It, it can go, it can go more than one way. That's true. Yeah. As you as you say that, Chris, what it it makes me think about is uh I don't know if this is a lost horizon or not, but I think it is. Uh, there's a lost horizon of righteousness. When you, mm-hmm. you were describing like that previous, the, the way that you, you engage the world, you know, like say the right things. If somebody says the wrong things, tell them they've said the wrong things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 had a, I mean, I did that too in my own way and, and I felt extremely righteous as I did it, right? Like yeah. I, am, I, am, I am a good person doing good things, making the world better. And um, now... I think one of the big differences is whenever I start to feel uh, a version of that righteousness now, um, it, a lot faster than I used to, I start to get really worried. Like, oh, I'm feeling righteous. That means I'm probably about to be a dick. You know, that means I'm about to to like um, try to impose my beliefs on another person or a group of people. Uh, it's when I'm going to probably misuse whatever power I may have in whatever position I have. Uh, because I start to feel righteous. And when, when you feel righteous, it's like you, you feel like my actions are justified, whatever they are, right? I'm justified in speaking the way that I speak and in acting the way that I act and trying to get other people to do likewise. Um, and that's a really dangerous place to be. So I, I think the younger version of me imagined a future where I, like my, <laughs> I was righteous and, and my righteousness uh, had some kind of like positive effect on the world. And now... Um, I'm terrified of people who feel like they're righteous, right? Because that's, that's the thing that, that allows for belonging gone wrong. That's the kind of thing that allows for people to do the most monstrous things that people can do is that, that sense of righteousness. And I, when, when we talk about like people say, why can't you just let me enjoy whatever? I think the biggest thing that I want to stop people from enjoying is their sense of righteousness. (laughs) You know, I want to, I want to disrupt this. I want to cut into it and break it up. 
and make it so that people um, are extremely suspicious of, if not afraid of, uh, that that wonderful kind of like invigorating feeling of doing the right thing, whatever that is. So that when they feel it, they they hit the brakes a little bit instead of the accelerator. And that's a that's a tough sell for me to for other people. But that's how I'm trying to live my own life too. That's a uh, against a against a Protestant leftism, right? <laughs> We we want a we want a more Catholic leftism, which is yeah. like I am mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. We are trash. <laughs> Don't get self righteous because there is nothing. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, what? One I've been, of I've been pro- reading a, in, that Enchantments of Mammon book, so you know, so good. <laughs> yeah. One of one of our common projects here is to try to ter- to determine the proper amount of bumming people out. Like what's yeah. the appropriate, what is, <laughs> I, you know, I think for me, this is something I've been really grappling with as like a core question. I think, you know, on a really personal level, but also trying, I think to grapple with this, you know, in, on red library, but also in a lot of writing I've been doing lately is that, you know, where, what is possible beyond that horizon of, of, you know, it's like if, if the point of like checking that and hitting the brakes is to provide a corrective to this, tendency towards righteousness and righteousness, which can go very, very wrong. You know, is there a way to sort of have a check on that, a kind of dialectical pessimist relationship to that and also still have incredibly firm and passionate and strong beliefs about the kind of world that you want to see. And that to me is, I think in a really personal way, what I'm trying to find is like, I want to find a route from that righteousness through the dialectical sort of like critique of it against this sort of like Protestant leftism and a, you know, broader political framework. And then to say, is it like, what does it look like to, to go through that process to work through it and yet somehow come out on the other side with, you know, a, like a, a tension that you keep with your beliefs that it's like, I can be very critical of these and understand all the ways that these can go wrong and turn me into a monster and yet I can still hold these with like fire and like conviction and like, and the courage to like act upon those and, and to try to be in the world and exist in the world in a way that, you know, at least I hope that on some level, you know, won't fall prey to becoming a monster because of it. To me, I think my own, where I'm at with how my own personal experience of all this links up to a broader political sort of way of seeing the world like hinges on that question to me. And I don't have an answer for it, but it's, to me, it's one that I feel like I want to find out at least for me, like how to, how to work through that and come out the other side. That makes me think about Mark Fisher, uh, who comes into my thoughts pretty regularly, right? Like that's why he's my zaddy. (laughs) (laughs) Always good to be thinking about Mark Fisher. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like the, the, when I read, uh, exiting the vampire castle the first time, I was like, yeah, this is the thing, right? Like the, the righteousness is the vampire. Yeah. You know what I mean? Definitely. Yeah. Um, and it's weird because people don't see it that way. They, they think that the righteousness is like the, the vampire slayer, but it's the yeah. vampire. Imagine reading of- that and taking issue with it. Like the, the amount of backlash <laughs> that he got from oh, that. Yeah. It just blows my fucking mind that the left is so incapable of self-reflection as so as to see that as him actually being against progress. I actually think this is exactly one of those things that you see it as a lost horizon, but other people see it as utopia is to say that, listen, like your righteousness, this uncritical, unreflective righteousness is the vampire. And I think that is, that is a, 
deeply, deeply challenging thing because I think to, to give up your righteousness is to give up, like, I think something that is core and what people feel is foundational to them. It's like you're asking mm-hmm. them to give up who they are, you know? And I, and I think to some degree, I have a lot of friends who I think still operate on that righteousness and, and are still very much oh, in the vampire yeah. castle. I know we all do. And I think what's tough is that I, I'm like wanting to push them towards that or at least like offer them. That's my perspective on it. And at the same time, I can be very aware of like, God, this is fucking terrifying to do this. Like, I understand like why you're bucking against this so hard because the idea that you would have to give up whatever it is that gives you a sense of solidity and like stability and your sense of self and life. It's like, that's a fucking terrifying thing to have to give up. Yeah, um, man. When you yeah. discover that the world is a vampire and that despite all your rage, <laughs> God damn it. Just <laughs> <laughs> nobody wants to just be a rat in a cage man no one does yeah no um no it's yeah, true and it's, it's, look and it's the <laughs> to try to to try to um make up for what i just did <laughs> i should say that it's also like it's t- it's a tough kind of engagement to have when we don't have anything really on offer to replace it you mm-hmm. know the like this the kind of self-reinforcing sense of righteousness that um carries people through you know the this slog of just the everyday um and you we're asking people to drop it we're trying to learn how to drop it ourselves but we haven't really yet found like uh like a meaningful north star so what we're what we're saying is it's you know just just to go back to that conversation about the the building and looking for the light switch it's really tough to tell people it's better to try to figure it out in the dark Nobody wants mm-hmm. to hear that. We don't want to hear it. It's just that we already think it. I, I think maybe I'm glad you said that, Jason, because on some level, when I was talking about wanting to like find out what's what's on the other side, once you work through that, like past righteousness and whatever else, I think that's exactly what I'm I'm wanting to try to fi- at least make some even I'm, honestly, I think if I made some like tidy little inroad to, to saying this is what what else could be, or this is another way that you could, you know, sort of exist and you know the way i've been thinking about it's like have a livable life you know and some sort of way that isn't disconnected from like the larger political struggles and questions like to me that's that's the that's the name of the game right now is that there has to be some sort of way to say this is what the alternative is because without that i mean you know just as an organizer if you like help someone critique the thing that they're like operating in and existing in and then you have no way to say well here's you know you don't have an ask at the end of it like why the fuck would you ever expect anyone to drop the thing that they're already doing or to like meaningfully take a risk to have to give up something that's so deeply personal to them or that they're dependent on for their survival even their emotional and psychological survival i think it's like it's really hard as an organizer to ever think someone's going to commit to that without you offering a clear at least somewhat clear alternative to that. Yeah, that's sort of been uh, uh, something that our project on The Regrettable Century has, you know, it hasn't been super coherent, but I'd say that one of the underlying themes is that we want people to be uncomfortable with just accepting that the way things that they were doing in the past there are good, you know, um, because... I look back at the way I used to do things in the past and I think that it was bad. I think that it was destructive and it was totally useless. But at the same time, I don't know what else to tell people to do instead. You know, I have no idea. The only thing that I can tell people is we have to start over, you know, Mm -hmm. everything. We have to start over from the very beginning. That's the only thing that I can tell 
tell anyone. It's like, we got to go back to the beginning. We got to go back to basics and we got to start over and try to build, build a project uh, salvaging the pieces of what we, what we came from and like that, that are worth salvaging while not accidentally bringing along the harmful toxic parts. And that is not something that anybody wants to hear. They want to know that there's a big machine that they can just like jump onto. And that big machine is going to carry them across the finish line, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and like, it's not even something that you can easily encapsulate in a, in message form. It's not an organizing level discourse. No. You know, it's, it's a conversation for the people who fancy themselves to be organizers to have maybe, but it's not like a, it's not a slogan. You can't put on your banner. Like everything is useless. Uh, think don't do this question train, mark. This train is powered by melancholy, which is still my, favorite, my favorite dialectical pessimist saying it's a good one. Or, or something that I said on the, the last podcast where, um, People were people are saying like, oh, I'm, I was really depressed until all these, you know, protests started happening, and then I was like, no, bro, stay depressed. This is making me think of something that that I just read, and I just I, I had it at hand here, so I, I was gonna see what you all think about this. Maybe um, so. One of the things that that I, I end up doing a lot is I, I talk to a lot of people who are um, devout Christians of various uh, types, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, I grew up in a in a very Catholic family, and it's weird because the, the conversations I, I, they take a lot of forms, but generally there's this thing where people say something to me along the lines of like, Neil, like you're actually a Christian. You get that right. And, and, and you just need to like come to to church or something like that so that you can like really do it for real, for real. And I'm like, no, you don't need I totally disagree. Like I don't believe in an afterlife. I do not believe that, um, uh, there was anything divine, uh, about this, this guy, Jesus of Nazareth who lived at this time. Although I think he said some amazing things that I totally agree with. And we start having these 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 crazy conversations uh, around the, these things, and it's weird because I, I I also am trying to a lot of times indict them in the ways in which they're um, uh, the the way in which they practice Christianity uh, has uh, cre- for them created these like inside outside distinctions, right? There's people who are inside my wall, and there's people who are outside my wall, and the people who are inside my wall are righteous and right, and we need to kind of like take what's inside and like expand it outside. Da 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 da. So the world is going through all the things that it's going through. And I uh, have this book called the radical King. Have you guys ever read this by any chance? Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a collection. It's an anthology book of sermons and letters and speeches that Martin Luther King gave. 
Mm-hmm. And um, uh, there, there's something in this that just came to mind as we were having this conversation. And this is from the introduction, which is written by Cornell West. Uh, he says, King's radical love put a premium on artistic performance and existential praxis. His sermons were performances that authorized an alternative to reality the way that the world is. His living radiated a radical tenderness, a subversive sweetness, and a militant gentleness. And when I think about like the kind of project that, that I'm involved in and that I assume you are in your own ways as well, those like descriptions seem to, to hit it, right? A radical tenderness, a subversive sweetness, and a militant gentleness I think is really good. And there's, there's other parts of this that just blew me away too in the same introduction. Yeah, he, he's making a comparison here between Dorothy Day and, and Martin Luther King. And he says, uh, like his great contemporary Dorothy Day, the Catholic saint who looked at the world through the lens of her heart, Dr. King understood radical love was a form of death, a relentless self-examination in which a fearful, hateful, egotistic self dies daily to be reborn in a courageous, loving, and sacrificial self. For both King and Day, this radical love flows from an imitation of Christ in response to an invitation of self-surrender in order to emerge fully equipped to fight for justice in a cold, cruel world of domination and exploitation. And yeah, I, know, I just, I, re- I remembered that when we were having this talk, so I figured I'd read it out loud and see if anybody had anything to say. You know, I, I'm someone who comes from, um, you know, earlier in life, a history of practicing Buddhism and particularly Zen Buddhism. And, you know, I still study things like yogic philosophy and religion and still practice various disciplines like precisely for me, I think as a way to try to, I don't know, dialectically relate or like combine like that, like at least attempting to try to find a way to exist in exactly that way that West is describing. I mean, I think the other thing that I really like about that is I think a lot of those qualities, like the idea that one can be both militant and gentle at the same time is one that I've seen play out, I think in really... (laughs) And I, I don't usually like using this word, but like really toxic ways, especially with a lot of the men that I've organized with, that this idea is that one must be militant without ever being critical of what that means. And, and, and I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of women I've organized with, like also like, are, like they see this from a mile away. You know, they see that that sort of militant zeal, that righteousness is also something that is deeply part of how we're socialized as men. And it's one of the reasons why I still like keep like a feminist kind of critique very much at the forefront of how I think about things. Because I think for myself as a man, like who, who came up in a family where that was very much a part of how you were socialized. I think if, if you, if you only have the militant aspect and just to be clear, I'm militant as fuck, you know, but if you don't also have that kind of gentleness too, I think you fall, you fall prey to becoming a monster of exactly the same kind that, you know, a lot of like women and feminists, like, like ruthlessly critique, you know, a lot of people who are in the hard left for. So, I mean, for me, I think in some ways, like what West is describing is, I don't know, especially for men on the left who are like very militant and, and very committed and passionate about these, these kind of politics. I think it's, it's kind of, it's, it's essential or else you're going to risk alienating a lot of people who don't look exactly like you in your attempts to change the world. And I think also, um, you know, you just perpetuate the same exact stereotypes that, 
you know, <laughs> like in some ways that, that feeling of like righteousness and being so trapped in the vampire castle are like built around, you know, I think they are responding to something that is like a pretty common tendency. I've seen it. I've actually left groups because I like couldn't stand being around that kind of shit. So I don't know. I mean, to me, that's, that's maybe a, a little bit of a lost future itself, right? Of like where it's just mi- being militant without that other quality that West is talking about. And I think we lose a future, a really significant future that we have to have without that. I I think that goes for people on the left, militants on the left, who are coming into contact with people who have done things in the past that are morally objectionable or have tendencies that they don't like or tendencies that are toxic or whatever. It's um I think that a lot of what we what we take and this goes back to the whole Protestant purity and righteousness thing, um when we we assume that people who are in our movement are going to be perfect people. Right. And when they're not, we've got to flog them for it and drive them out. Right. And that is, and I think that in order to be, to build a, to build a working left, to build a working movement um, that is actually going to have any sort of staying power and any kind of cohesiveness, that gentleness and understanding and tenderness is required in dealing with people who say and do or have said and have done things that we, that we think are wrong or morally objectionable. If we're trying to build a, a movement of only the righteous, then, you know, I mean, we're, we can't, but there, there aren't, the, the righteous don't exist. And if, if someone feels as though they are righteous and act and act as though they are righteous, then they're, they're lying. They're, they're charlatans. Yeah, the last truly virtuous person um, was executed in 1794. Who was that? Maximilien Robespierre. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That was our last shot. We do, we're not going to get to build a republic of virtue now. Ooh, speaking of a uh, lost horizon, maybe that would be that would be a big one. That's a big one. Yeah, but political yeah. lost horizons. I think that's the thing, though. We we can see, like, I mean, maybe maybe King is a great example, the Robespierre of of a lost horizon, because I mean, the, those people who who have these ideas of like militant gentleness, right? They're gentle, they're militantly gentle. What happens? Well, people who are militantly militant get guns or guillotines, you know, and uh, you can see where this goes. Uh, and that that's the the crazy thing here, right? Is is that uh, um, when when somebody uh, has a critique of righteousness, it doesn't tend to take people who are righteous and really give them pause very often. No matter how eloquent, no matter how well thought out, or how well articulated it is, it creates a, an angry reaction in, in people who have so much righteousness. And then they take their righteousness and they channel it into usually some form of violence. And then what happens is a lot of people go, see, this is what happens when you're militantly gentle. You get killed. Um, and, and, and yeah, so. That's a, that's a very popular uh, memeified lesson being circulated around um, right now. It's like, you know, there's some variant or another and you'll happen across it a thousand times a day if you spend too much time on the internet. It's, it, and it's like, you know, people calling for peaceful protest and then the response is, well, you know, we already did peaceful and look at what happened. And it's either Colin Kaepernick when that means being ignored or it's Martin Luther King, which means being destroyed. 
Um, so we already tried it your way is basically the, the notion. That yeah, I know. I've, I've had that same conversation and, and I don't know if you guys have had this, but I, I've been asking people this and I, I mean this like as a question. Is there, is, can you think of a time in which like, like doing the non um, militant gentleness, the, the, the angry thing, the, the violent thing um, has also achieved like, like meaningful, good kinds of, of, I mean like people who are militantly militant, they get killed too. Like the better Meinhof. Um, <laughs> I mean, they, they got they, some results. <laughs> I don't know if I, yeah, they're not, they're not exactly gentle. No, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, I think this is a really interesting question because this is also centered on Lost Horizons. I mean, I think about, um, let's say something like Thomas Sankran, like Burkina Faso, yeah. you know, someone who, you know, military officer, like stages a crew, you know, basically in three to four short years, radically remakes an entire country. I mean, he was very militant and I think brought about meaningful, significant change in a way that was just almost unimaginable. And you know, his destruction wasn't so much about his own methods. It was about the forces who were allied against him. You know, I mean, you were talking about the Panthers earlier, Neil, and I know you've studied the Panthers and I know you've studied history, right? I think about Fred Hampton, right? Like Fred Hampton in Chicago, like someone who is very militant, but also like very, I think could be very gentle and, and like combine those two in a way that I think he was seen as a re- a true threat to the larger system of like, you know, white supremacy and capital because of that, you know, he was gunned down in his bed, you know? And, and so to me, it's like, I don't know, like whenever I think about the history that I've learned, it's almost like, it doesn't really seem which way you do it. Like either way, if you're a threat, yeah. you're getting gunned down, you know? And so I don't know what that means, you know, whenever we then try to grapple with like these alternatives as like a way to, you know, figure out what we, what we're going to do. Right. It is a nice to block the doorway. You know, there are nicer ways to do it, but the nice ways always fail. That's like a very, you know, I don't know if I actually necessarily agree with that entirely, but I, I see why people do. I think it's mm-hmm. mostly true. Um, I guess the broader lesson is, is whether or not you're a plowman, you're still part of the manure of history, right? To circle back to a previous conversation, you just kind of have to expect, like you said, that no matter how you do it, it's going to be inappropriate to those who are uh, an obstacle to your goal. People who yeah. want you to fail, they prefer you to go away, no matter how nice or mean you are about what you're trying to do. I mean, you think about MLK, right? I mean, there was always this criticism that the only reason MLK could be given the prominence that he did was because there was Malcolm X in the background who was militant as fuck and who like was very much about, you know, more radical revolutionary like change and, Malcolm so I don't X, know. The I mean, Panthers, the Deacons no. for Defense. You know, there was a lot. Of, there were a lot of armed militants that were, but yes and know, no, right? Much like, scarier than Martin Luther King to white people. You know, I, I, one of the things I think we lose sight of though is just how unpopular King was in his own day. Oh, that yeah. is true. Totally unpopular. Yeah, that is true. You know, yeah, yeah. like I mean, not just, and I don't mean unpopular among say like white people. I mean unpopular among white and black people. Yeah. Um, there, there, he had, uh, I mean, very, very few people were like, yeah, I'm going to get on that, that idea. I mean, there, there were people clearly who did right. History has shown like the, in the March on Washington, he was able to, to mobilize people clearly, but even within those people who he mobilized, I think there were people who were, were there and they were like, yeah, I'm here for this, but you know, I'm not, I'm not really full in here. Right. Um, and I, I actually disagree significantly with this gentleness component that this dude is talking about all the time. I'm not down for that. 
And that's something that, I don't know, like I know that um, in my own teaching, right, people seem to think that, that the, the perception of king that exists today is like the perception of king that existed at the time that he was alive. And it, it's yeah. not. Um, yeah, right. and, and all that. Just as much as, as Malcolm X, you know, was also, I think, uh, reviled by many people, King was reviled by many people, too. Uh, at that time, it's just that in, in the contemporary era, King has been, um, I don't know, gone, his, it's, he's, he's gone from being, I think, a, a real person to sort of like a myth of sorts. That yeah oh yeah you know I think he's been defanged and sort of um like neutralized by a lot of the way that a lot of like establishment liberals especially have tried to recuperate his legacy. I mean I think the other thing too about King that was kind of a a revelation for me like trying to learn that history was also about you know not just like the tactics or the approach one uses but also what does one choose to focus on as like the issue right I mean you know is there there's probably something to the fact that it was King like supporting a sanitation worker strike and starting to speak out against Vietnam and imperialism and draw distinct connections between, you know, uh, like racial politics and class politics in the U S that probably made him, you know, much more threatening, you know, to a larger like political establishment. So, yeah, I think, you know, to me, that's another thing too, right. Is it also about the particular thing that you're pointing to and saying, this is the thing that we have to struggle against that then, you know, is also going to create a more violent backlash. I mean, that seems to me to be the case, you know, it's like people are, people are being gunned down whenever they tend to make a particular critique or or connect certain dots that I think are much more beneficial to the larger system of capital and like racism for people not to connect those dots. Word, word. Yeah. I I have one final lost horizon, a very small one. I want to, I want to make sure I don't forget that. You know, whenever we started this episode, I have this I I have this idea that I wanted to start by saying, well, you know, comrades, here we are still, after all. Like I wanted to say the name of the show as a way to start the episode, and I totally forgot to do that. So that's a lost future I, I, for me. When we edit it, I have an audio clip where somebody says that very thing um, that <laughs> I, I'm going to play. So. Technology Horizon, and if you want to hear about it, you should listen to the episode from 78 that I'm on. For sure, for sure. Yeah, that episode is great. Yeah, I'm going to be doing an episode with Jason this Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. nice. Mm-hmm. Because you're all so pessimistic, here are some outtakes for your amusement. So, so you're talking while about- you're re-ranting, I'm going to go to the bathroom real quick because I've already heard this shit. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to plug in my laptop real fast so I don't have a techno- <laughs> technological issue. Hold on. Look at this.
the technology thing. Oh, man. Mm. Well, this is weird. Like, usually when we do these things, I, I end up, like, laughing a lot. But I feel like we're, we're just doing a big uh, a sob fest here today. Like, what is this? That's funny. Like, whenever everybody else said they were going to get up and do something, I just checked out for a second. And then I realized, like, oh, shit, Neil's talking to me. <laughs> Story of my life, man. Yeah, whatever. But it, it it's not what I was expecting. I was like, oh, I'll get to go go do some some funnies. <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting some sads. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of those swirling around right now. And now some credits, so you know who to blame and where to direct your hate mail. This has been the third episode of Well, Here We Are Still After All, which is a collaboration between The Regrettable Century, Red Library, Political Education for Today's Left, and From 78. If you like what you hear on this podcast, you probably want to go and check out those other three podcasts because you'll hear more of the things that you enjoyed here. Additionally, you probably noticed that there was some kind of dark and brooding, but cool, transition music in between the segments on the show today. That music was very generously provided to us by a musician who goes by the name White Noise for Electronic Toys. And when he provided the music to us and said we can use it, and he didn't ask us to, to pay him or anything like that. The only thing he asked is that we say to you, our listeners, that if you like that music, you can go and stream it or if you really like to toss some material resources his way so we can continue making cool music you can buy his music on the service band camp and we'll put a link to that in our show notes once again the name of the band white noise for electronic toys really cool stuff if you like it go listen or buy it on Bandcamp. till next time take care
you know, the, the, when, I, when my really personal thing, which I may get into and may not, it's, um, I was a lost horizon where I, I had like, uh, I realized that love doesn't matter because there was somebody who I was deeply in love with and had, had done a, a lot of things to attempt to show that. And then, uh, they ended up not being that interested. And so that, that's, that was one of my, my big lost horizons on a personal level. I was wondering if something like that was going to come up. So I feel like that absolutely is a very relevant one. I've been avoiding that one. I think I'm going to keep avoiding it, but let's just say that is one. <laughs> Damn, you weren't supposed to talk about new stuff while I was gone. <laughs> um, so, so yes or no. So just so I clarify. So sis, talk about the book or no? Yes. <laughs> 